When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is a show that we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. So make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here, as well as getting some killer free stuff by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of dating and attraction such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, even relationship management and breakups. That stuff is all obviously extremely important to your success, so make sure you get a handle on that as well. We've also got our boot camps and our live training running every single week here in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com or just give us a call or even email me, Jordan H. at The Art of Charm, and I'll tell you exactly what you need to know to get started with that. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today we're talking with Tom Corley, author of Rich Kids. You might recognize him from Rich Habits. We did a show on that earlier. We're going to talk about how to teach our kids to be successful both financially and in terms of, of course, happiness, and how to turn on something called the genius gene and actually raise your IQ. This isn't hyper hyperbole. It's actually scientifically possible, and we're going to talk about that. Of course, the link between happiness, success, and having a main purpose in life, and four traits that are automatically created by having a main purpose in life, and naturally, a process in helping your child find that purpose. It might be simple, but it is very important at the same time, and of course, we're going to talk about forced focus versus unforced focus, teaching kids etiquette with eating and dress, as well as how to introduce themselves. We've got, this is more of a parenting episode, as you guys can see, and teaching kids the mindset that will put them in the top 5% of society as adults. There's a lot here, especially if you have kids. And honestly, as adults, I think a lot of us could use a refresher on this stuff as well. So give this to a friend with some kids if you don't have any of your own and enjoy this one with Tom Corley. All right, back with Tom Corley. You guys heard him on Rich Habits as well. Rarely do I have a guest on twice, let alone in a short time span. But one, it was the timeliness of the book. But two, I liked the rich habits as applied to kids, which is, of course, your new book, Rich Kids. I like that because, one, I think adults don't have these habits. Two, 
habits that adults have are largely born in childhood. And three, a lot of people listening to the show are parents and they want to teach their kids a lot of the skills they learn at the Art of Charm. And why not take it from somebody who's actually doing that and wrote a book about doing that? So tell us what the book is about, because it's not just charming kids, it's it's rich kids. What are you teaching people to teach their kids? Yeah, well, the, the whole purpose behind uh, writing Rich Kids was to really create a template for allowing parents, teachers, grandparents to uh, mentor these kids. Uh, you know, it's a really a book about mentoring. Uh, it's a book that teaches strategies that I uncovered, uh, tips, uh, some tools that I created as a result of my research to uh, give parents sort of a leg up on helping them uh, uncover really their their genius. You know, the kids have this incredible ability to learn, uh, and it's really a great time to teach kids these uh, skills, these strategies, the habits while they're young because they uh, kids, by and large, have far more uh, brain space, far more neurons than adults, and it, it, the best time to teach them that this stuff is when they're young. Huh, okay. Well, that, of course, makes sense. I didn't know kids had more neurons. I just thought they were less distracted by things like stress, etc. Um, and, I'm, of course, that's true as well. So first thing in the book, helping children find their main purpose in life. I get email all the time from people who are like, help me find what I want to do, which is, a, you know, come on, um, a ridiculously difficult question for anybody to answer, let alone a stranger on the Internet. Uh, but, you know, you've outlined a link between happiness, success, and having a purpose. We all know that having money isn't it. Million-dollar suicidal depressed millionaires are cliché in every society, and happiness, of course, not necessarily linked to rich people exclusively, and having purpose largely linked to happiness in many cases, especially if you hang out with a lot of these internet marketer guys, they'll tell you that's all you need. So so tell us about the link between happiness, success, and a main purpose, and how we can teach our kids that I don't have main purpose in life. It sounds like a really tall order, and it's only one of the things you cover in the book. So so right, you know, right. let's 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 tackle that one first and see if we have time for the rest. Sure. Well, one of the things that is uh, unique about us is that we're we're all genetically predisposed to be goal oriented. Uh, you've heard it before. We're goal seeking mechanisms. Uh, when we pursue a goal or a main purpose or you know some life dream, what happens physiologically is. Uh, uh, there are new neurons that start firing up with one another, creates new neural pathways, new axons, dendrites, synapses, all these things going on in the brain. And the brain likes this, so it releases uh, certain neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, uh, and uh, it kind of gives us a, a pleasure or a sense of happiness uh, when we learn something new while we're pursuing a goal. So getting our kids involved in goal setting is important because it helps grow their brains. It helps create happiness in their lives. Parents help their kids pursue goals. Uh, they're actually doing something that I call turning on the genius gene, Jordan. Uh, we all have the capacity for genius, all of us, except, you know, people that have some disabilities. What do you, what do you mean by genius? Because obviously IQ level, I'm sure you can raise your IQ, but probably not from 90 to 150. 60, right? I mean, I don't know. You During your lifetime, you can increase your IQ between 20 and 25 points. Uh, it all comes down to what your activities, what you engage in. Your IQ is not fixed. They, they now 
this is the last 10 years of neuroscience has uh, come around and they, uh, they realize that uh, your IQ is not something that's fixed at birth. It grows and it increases and it expands. Your intelligence expands. Your brain actually increases in density during your lifetime uh, by increasing the number of synapses that comes about from learning new knowledge, learning new skills. There's a lot going on in the brain. The physiology of the brain is really kind of cool. Uh, and one of the things that goals do is it turns on something called uh, the reticular activating system. And this, it's called RAS for short. It acts like a, a filter. Uh, it blocks out almost all sensory input. Because if it didn't, we'd get we'd go into overload. So is it is that the thing where it's like, all right, look at everything in the room that's red, and then you close your eyes, and they're like, all right, what did you see that was blue, and you can't think of anything, even though like half the room is blue. Yeah, it's something like that. It's being tuned in to certain sensory input. Like a, a better example, one that I love is imagine Jordan, you're in the middle of an airport, and there's thousands of people, and they're all talking, and it's just white noise, you know. Then somebody says, "Hey, Jordan." And you immediately turn around. Well, that's the RAS at work. It's filtering out all that white noise, but it's tuned in to your name. The same thing happens with goals. When you set a goal, the RAS is turned on specifically for to obtain information about that goal. And it's really how the law of attraction actually works. The, the law of attraction is all about the, the reticular activating system. It, it turns it on and then it's, uh, you're not, finding new opportunities, you're, you're tuned in to new opportunities. That's how the, uh, the law of attraction and the reticular activating system work. Uh, there's another thing I wanted to talk about, too, is when you, when you get your kids to pursue a uh, goal or main purpose or something in life, it creates or introduces them to a new type of focus that I call unforced focus. And it's the most powerful type of focus that you can have. It, it just occurs when we pursue something that we're passionate about. It allows us to learn at an accelerated rate because we can engage in an activity for an elongated period of time. Einstein had it, Steve Jobs had it, Warren Buffett had it, and people with this unforced focus, they can work on something with uh, laser beam attention almost endlessly, uh, just stopping to eat, sleep, and you know to relieve themselves. So uh, when you are helping your kids to pursue a goal, you're doing all sorts of things inside the brain and you're creating this unforced focus uh, that enables them to learn at an accelerated rate. So it's pretty cool. The other thing it does is it triggers uh, what I call a couple of uh, success traits, uh, passion, persistence, focus, and patience. You know, those things can't be forced. They just have to kind of be a byproduct of... Uh, you know, you engaging in some type of goal setting or pursuing a main purpose in life. The, the importance of, of pursuing goals and of helping your kids find a main purpose in life, as a parent, it's probably the most important function in terms of being a mentor to your kids that you can, uh, you can engage in. And, and I even, in my book, Rich Kids, I, I even have a process that parents, uh, an exercise that they can engage in with kids. And I have a lot of People on Facebook who follow me and on Twitter who follow me that have, you know, engaged in this exercise with their kids, and they really come back with some really cool comments. Uh, and if you want, I can, you know, I can talk about how, that process. Sure. I mean, 
Well, first of all, I'm learning Chinese. Is my IQ going up? Am I triggering the genius gene or am I too old? Uh, yeah, when you learn a new language, by the way, learning a new language, the optimal time is between the age of, you know, one and 10. After that, the language area of the brain, it starts to pare down neurons. You start, It starts paring away neurons as we get older. Like I said, kids have a, probably a third more neurons uh, up until the age of about 20 than uh, adults do. So if you don't learn a new language, probably by the time you're 20, you're going to struggle uh, learning a new language because there are less, there are fewer neurons in that space, in that brain space where the language takes place. Huh. You know, I heard that science wasn't necessarily that good and that adults learn language as good or better than kids. So I guess the jury is maybe still out on that because I've talked to some language specialists that have said actually the opposite of that uh, and that adults learn languages better because they have context and things like that. Maybe it's not as quick, but I'm not sure about that either. I don't know. But, well, you know, I'm, I'm deep into the research on, on brain research, and I just finished about four books on uh, neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, and they're recent books, and they all say the same thing. They're, they're saying that what happens is the, the as you get older – your brain pairs down. It's just part of the process. It pairs away uh, neurons. So if you want to learn a language, the best time to do it is when you're young. You can do it. You can rewire your brain. There's no question about it. But it is harder when you're an adult. The, all these experts are, are saying the same thing. Okay. That makes sense. And what is this forced versus unforced focus? What is that again? Forced focus is like when you've got to uh, study for an exam. Okay. You've got to force yourself to have the discipline to sit down and absorb the material. Uh, unforced focus is really a type of focus that is unique to human beings. If you're pursuing a goal or, or a main purpose in life that really creates a passion that you're very passionate about, you have the ability through unforced focus to uh, focus on that activity almost without any discipline. In other words, you can spend uh, four, five, six straight hours without taking a break when you engage in, in an activity that you really are passionate about. It's, it seems to be a hallmark of the wealthy people that I've, I've studied in my research. They just have this incredible ability to focus for long periods of time. They're not forcing it. it it's something that they get pulled away from it for other reasons, but they want to go right back into it. Things that interfere with it, and disrupt it, it's something that bothers them. They want to get right back into the activity. And like I said, a lot of these successful people, Edison's probably the best example of it. Warren Buffett is to some extent. They could just spend 10 or 12 hours engaged in what they love to do, uh, and, and they get irritated when they have to be pulled away from it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay. And one is better than the other, because why? Well, unforced focus is better because forced focus, you really have to take a break every hour and a half, hour to an hour and a half, uh, because you're really sapping your energy when you force yourself to focus. And with unforced focus, you don't have that energy drain. Because you're not forcing yourself to focus, it's almost a seamless process within the brain. So unforced focus is really the best way to focus. But that requires that you find some goal that you're passionate about or some major purpose or life dream that you're pursuing. Right. So it's passion project versus studying calculus yeah. for somebody like me. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, running my CPA from eight to 10 hours a day. People always ask me, how do you how are you able to get so much done when you're running a firm 
And I always say, you know, I get up early in the morning and I got like three hours of solid work that I do. And I'm telling you, Jordan, I, I wish it was 12 hours. I wish I could just stay there in my basement, in my hovel for 12 hours and do this stuff because time just flies by. And I, I think a lot of successful people who are pursuing something big, they, they experience the same thing. Interesting. All right. Okay. And so creating that main purpose, I mean, it's still really tough. I mean, how do you do this in a, with a kid? There's a, uh, an exercise that I created for my book, Rich Kids. And here's how it works. By the way, this is probably optimal for kids that are you know in the age group of like 14 and up. You, you list everything in their life that ever made them happy. Uh, and then you highlight those those happiness events that require some type of skill, preferably a marketable skill, a skill that you could take with you, you in life. And then you create a second column. And what you do is you assign a number to each one of those highlighted happiness events, with uh, one being the happiest one and number two being the next happiest one. And then in the third column, you assign another number to each happiness event with number one being the greatest uh, potential income. And that's where the parents have to get involved. They'll have a better idea what how much money you can make it with certain skill sets. Uh, and then number two would be the next highest income. And then in the fourth column, you kind of total all of the numbers. The lowest numbers represent the the best or optimal main purpose uh, that your kid could should pursue because it's a, it's something they like to do. It's a skill and it has the greatest earning potential. So you might have like four or five or six of these. And what you can do is you can have your kid pursue each one as if it were a project for six months at a time and, and just see, you know, if they, if the passion bubbles up, then you might be onto something. If it doesn't, you move on to the next one. Excellent. Okay. So we're sort of just testing. We're literally just throwing spaghetti at the wall, seeing what sticks and then sort of honing it down from there. Yeah. Because finding your main purpose in life is so difficult. Most people, you know, they're in their mid forties and they say, oh man, I, I wish I did this. They stumble onto something and they realize, I wish I was doing this when I was 14 or 15, not when I'm 40. Yeah. I mean, I still get that. And, you know, I'm 34 and I'm like, oh man, I really love this, man. I wish I'd been, you know, working on this sport or this hobby or language. But sometimes I often wonder what I really wanted to study Chinese when I was 15. Probably not, you know, so it's hard to say what I have patience for now versus back then. But what, when we have a main purpose or when our kids have this purpose, what sort of traits then shake out? I mean, what does this do other than having a kid who can now start to do his proverbial 10,000 hours, which we now know is a myth, early versus somebody who starts after college or whatever. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years, 
going through endless resumes. Well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Well, like you said, it's, it gives them the ability to test the waters, to dip their toe in the waters while they're young. Uh, it also enables them to learn from their mistakes and learning from your mistakes, failing and making making mistakes are the, the best way to learn because they're like railroad tracks in the brain. So you're giving your kids an ability early on in life to pursue a purpose and screw up and then learn from those mistakes when it doesn't cost you a job. Your kids pick up skills. These mistakes are like hard-won uh, learning events. And imagine, so now your kid has gone through this uh, process with four or five of these main purposes. And now he, he goes on in life, and at some time, you know, maybe he's age 30, and he says, you know what, I, I want to get back into doing X, Y, or Z. And so they have that skill set that they learned as a young kid, and, and it's easier. The learning curve is a lot easier when they're older if they have uh, developed skills because the parents, you know, help enable them to pursue a purpose in life. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. I mean, it, it sort of naturally follows that they'll be able to start early, make a lot of mistakes because... Man, there's some kids that I work with that are ahead of their time that I really love working with. And we've all seen that 40-year-old like loser who still can't get up and go to work on time and still lives with his mom. Well, he's failed a lot, but he's never learned from that failure, never been encouraged by it, etc. Right? Always had that protectiveness. So the sooner we get the kids doing that stuff for themselves, 
the sooner they can move towards mastery and the sooner they build resilience. And of course, just the, the basic sort of etiquette, and we can talk about that later when dealing with other people, because that's another thing you see is people sending you resumes that are written like my dad texts, you know, he can't, he doesn't want to type you. So he uses the word, the letter. And I'm thinking you're emailing me with that to ask for a job and your resume isn't spell checked. I mean, what's going on here? But it's not that the kid who sent that is some kind of idiot. I mean, that might be the case at some points, but they just don't know any better because it's the first time they've done it. And I bet you if I look at my old resume from 1998, before I had it checked by somebody who was smart and grown up, it probably looked the same way. What about etiquette? What about manners? I mean, do we teach kids that stuff? I remember my dad teaching me how to shake people's hands and things like that. And I know that a lot of little kids don't know how to do that now. Even teenagers don't seem, and adults for that matter, don't really seem to know how to do that. I've probably said this before, but I'll say it again. Parents are often the only shot any of us have at having a mentor in life. It's really up to the parents to teach these kids etiquette. You can't just hang it on the teachers. In my view, there's, I guess, about five things, five types of etiquette uh, that parents should be teaching their kids. There's communication etiquette. There's eating etiquette. There's dress etiquette. Uh, how to introduce yourself. That's an etiquette. And basic manners. You know, these are all fundamental things that parents need to be teaching. And, and when it comes to communication, uh, some of the things that parents should be teaching their kids is make sure that they teach their kids to look everyone in the eye. Don't stare at their eyes. You know, five seconds is long enough. Then divert your, you know, your, your stare to some other part of their face and then move back. So you really want to just uh, make, make them think that you're uh, paying attention to what they're saying. And when you look in their eyes, that's, that's a natural uh, indicator that people are paying attention to you. Not every thought that comes into your head should come out of your mouth. Uh, you have to teach kids that they've got to vet their thoughts because, you know, when you just say what's on your mind, uh, you can damage relationships and hurt feelings. And, you know, I found in my research that wealthy people, they just, they vet all their thoughts. They don't, contrary to what Jack Welch seems to believe, which is, uh, you know, he's a big believer in saying what's on your mind. I don't believe that if you say what's on your mind, these wealthy people, they know that they're going to damage relationships and they know these relationships are helping them uh, create some of their wealth. So they're not going to do that. Some thoughts are just not appropriate. They shouldn't come out of your mouth. They're just not the right thoughts to come out of your mouth and never criticize, condemn, and, and don't complain about anyone to anybody. If, if I'm complaining to you, Jordan, I guarantee you in the back of your mind, subconsciously at least, you're thinking, well, wow, you know, if Tom's complaining about this person, I wonder if he's going to complain about me or criticize me. I mean, that, that's the subconscious uh, thing that goes on. So you don't want to, to put that bug in people's heads that you talk about them in a negative way. You don't want to gossip. Gossip is bad for the most part. Uh, it's negative and that damages relationships. And you want to gather as much information on your relationships as you can. Uh, this helps when you communicate because you know more about your relationship. Uh, it's all, all about focusing on the other person. You want to make hello calls, happy birthday call, life event calls. I think we talked about that in the last uh, session. Yeah. And it's funny you should mention don't say what's on your mind because my sort of picture of a little kid, it's great. They don't have that social filter. But what's bad is sometimes that social filter or that lack thereof, it starts out with them when they're really little walking up to somebody and saying something like, why are you so fat? or something like that. And it's like, it's cute because you're four, 
But if you're doing that when you're nine and ten, it's like, what's wrong with this kid? What's wrong with this kid's parents? You know? Yeah, uh, maybe you can relate to this, Jordan, because I sure can. When I was in high school, some of the biggest jerks uh, that I now uh, see are some of the nicest people. And I'll tell you what they learned was they can't be a jerk and keep a job. They learned that they've got to you know, be careful how they manage their relationships, what they say. Early on in school, you might be able to get away with it. Uh, but when you get out into the real world, uh, the real world has a, a quick way of uh, disposing with people like that. And they, you know, they don't get the promotions. They don't get the, the plush jobs. They get held back in life. So, you, you know, it's in the best interest of parents to teach their kids how to communicate and build relationships in a positive way. Because uh, when they, at some point, no matter how much the parents enable the kids, at some point in time, those kids are going to be on their own as adults. If the parents didn't prepare them properly, they're going to struggle in life. They're going to eke out a living and they're going to be unhappy. Yeah, it's really true. I haven't kept in touch with a lot of people from high school or college, but it's really funny because even guys that made it through good universities just by virtue of going to good schools, maybe having good study habits, if they had parents that babied them or you know, they got away with kind of being a little bit of a jerk because they were really good at sports and they had okay grades. Once they got into the workplace, it was like, guess what? Your boss is a nerd, not the other kids in your class deciding who gets to go to the party or, or do this. You can't, you can fool your professors here and there, but when you have a close relationship with people that you work with, your boss, your coworkers, if they don't like you, you're in deep shit, period. And there's nothing you can do about it if you've blown it the first 90 days of your job and everybody thinks you're a, a dick and you try to fix it later, it's going to be really hard, if not impossible. And, and my girlfriend worked with this complete knucklehead at her accounting firm and they bent over backwards to accommodate him and he tried to file workers comp and everybody didn't like him and he was arrogant. You know, he wore shorts to work and he got yelled at and he would mumble things under his breath. Well, he finally got fired. And he said, oh, I need a recommendation for this other job. And Jenny's like, I can't give this guy a recommendation. He's a Yahoo. And I said, you can say that you're happy to speak to anybody by phone, you know, because you can't give this person a recommendation that's written, et cetera, et cetera. So first tell him you don't know well enough, blah, 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 you're new in the office. And then second, if he insists, tell him you're willing to speak to people by phone. And then when they call, you can say, listen, you know, this guy, I can't say anything good about this guy. So at least you don't have something that can be forwarded to him or accidentally BCC'd. But nobody likes him, and now he's in trouble. He's gotten fired after 90 days plus on the job, and he can't even get a recommendation from his coworker because everyone hated him. Yeah, well, you know, that's a perfect example. When parents fall down on the job, uh, then the kids are forced as adults to learn these fundamentals of relationship building and communication yeah. through the school of hard knocks. That guy's learning it through the school of hard knocks. And, you know, he may turn around and become – uh, uh, you know, uh, might be a fast learner and figure it out. You may not. You know, if you don't figure it out through the school of hard knocks, then you're going to just uh, struggle in life. Yeah, I think a lot of times the school of hard knocks is too tough on people as well. And so if you get canned from your job at a movie theater when you're 15 for stealing candy or something like that, you realize there's consequences. It doesn't burn you later on. It doesn't hit your resume. Nobody's going to try to poison you. You're not in that industry, right? Nobody's poisoning the well. But when you are 25 and you get fired from your first job because you're a jackass and no one likes you and you can't dress appropriately for work, now you can be in trouble. And, and that guy might recover. But the, on the other hand, 
when people get fired and it's really demoralizing and they have trouble finding another job, that's what creates the 40-year-old guy who lives on mom's couch uh, versus a kid who goes and sulks about it for the rest of the summer and then realizes through the process of maturing and, and reflection, you know what, I brought that one on myself. And the consequences at that point aren't really real, right? So I, I definitely think there's a lot to that. Learning how to eat, learning how to dress. What about eating? Do you have any specific tips? I mean, I've seen some pretty bad eating habits just generally among guys my own age. I probably don't even have the best. I, I just, I don't worry about it too much, but I'm also not gross. So there's, there's the fine line, I guess. Well, you know, this is kind of a modern day problem because, um, uh, you know, in my house, when I grew up, we sat at a, at a dinner table. And I can tell you, when raising my kids, uh, we tried to do that. What I found out in my research is that a lot of these people that are poor, struggling financially, when they're having dinner, it's, it's three times a week, it's at a fast food table. You know, there's no forks, there's no plates, except plastic forks and plastic plates or whatever, or containers. They're never learning really how to eat. In cases where they are eating at home, in a lot of cases, they're, they're watching TV while they eat. The whole family's watching TV. What parents need to do, and I'll just go down the list, is, you know, the etiquette you need to have or teach your kids when they, as soon as they sit down, you know, the napkin comes off and goes on your lap. You don't you know, start eating until everyone has their meal. This is just basic fundamental eating etiquette. You don't chew with your mouth open. You don't talk while you're chewing your food. You never dip your food into any sauce that other people are using. Uh, you don't wolf down your food and you never hold a spoon, fork, or knife with your fist. Uh, the outside fork is for salads, inside forks for your meal. Never make gestures uh, using your utensils in your hands and uh, never reach for anything. Uh, you always ask someone to pass things like salt and pepper. Don't slouch, sit up. And after the meal, you know, have a toothpick or something like that and excuse yourself, go to the bathroom and clean out your teeth. It's funny because a lot of people listening go, of course, everyone knows this stuff. I know this stuff. My kids know this stuff. Watch your kids eat next time because they might not even be thinking about it. And they certainly might not care how they eat around their parents. But here's the thing. You go, oh, well, when we get into a situation, he'll do it. No, you do what your habit tells you to do. That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. You can't assume that because you know it, your kids have to know it. You have to turn it into a habit. Uh, it has to become a habit. And when the kids become adults and they're sitting at lunch for their job interview and they're not holding their fork with the fist uh, and they, their, their napkin isn't sitting on the table, then you know you've accomplished something. You've created a habit for that kid. And that, you know, isn't it terrible that you can be really smart and really do well in school and college and uh, get great references and you get this job interview and then you're sitting there and you don't know how to eat and you, you don't get the job because somebody else who may not be as smart gets the job because they know how to eat. And, you know, the boss or the interviewer knows, hey, that person's going to be sitting with some of my some of our clients, some of our customers at dinner. And that would be embarrassing. So they don't hire them. It is. It's such a bad way to lose a job, too. And, and for any sort of Wall Street interview they always take you out to eat and and you know we used to be like oh it's cool you get to go have this nice lunch i didn't even think about it until i started working at the firm that it was a test i was like this is great they're trying to wine you and dine you no they're trying to see if you eat like an a-hole because you're going to be doing that with clients and 
you know, other people later on down the line, coworkers, you're going to be representing the firm. They want to see if you, you know, get butter all over your face and, and eat steak with your hands. I mean, they want to see if you know what you're doing. And, and I've definitely made some dining mistakes and had people, and it was awful, say something like, hey, man, you know, we like you otherwise, no big deal. I don't think anybody else noticed, but you did, you know, stick your steak knife into the butter. And I was like, oh, my God, that's awful. I, I know better, but you know what? I didn't have the habit because I ate with my parents and I ate with at the dining hall in college where nobody gave a rat's ass, you know? And so my habits were terrible. You know, when I was first starting out, I got an interview with Arthur Anderson, which is no longer yeah. around, a big yeah. accounting firm, right? I remember I was sitting at the uh, lunch and, you know, whatever meal I had, I think that, I think it was a steak. It was a really fine restaurant. They, they really went to the nines on me. And uh, I remember. As soon as, the, you know, I got my meal, I started putting salt on my steak. I like salt on my steak. And the partner, after lunch, uh, made a comment to one of the individuals that was the manager. They said, did you notice he put salt on the steak without even tasting it? And I thought that was the most yeah. bizarre comment. But then I thought, when I was doing my research, I thought about it. And I said, my gosh, you, you know, that's just... You're going to a fancy restaurant where the, the food is meticulous, and I suppose that they might be a little pissed yeah, off that you're doing you know what, that. Another thing that just adults can learn that I didn't know, and I didn't make this mistake, but I saw somebody else do it. I went to a steak restaurant with a guy we later, and later ended up firing uh, from the Yard of Charm. But uh, we went to a steak restaurant, and we ordered steak, and I ordered mine rare because it's a nice place, and he ordered his medium rare because that's the way he liked it. And this, this beautiful, I mean, probably... $40 McCormick and Schmick steak arrived at the table. We were celebrating something. And he asked the waiter for A1. The chef came out, or the sous chef came out with a bottle of A1 and said, do you want the steak or do you want the sauce? Because if you want the sauce, you don't need this steak. And I remember being like, damn, that just happened. Because normally a restaurant would never talk to the customer that way. But I think that they were already kind of like, what the hell is this? Because we were dressed, you know, like we had just come from this event and stuff. By the way, he was half joking. So it wasn't as rude as it sounded. But it, we'd already been bantering with some of the staff and the bartender and stuff. And later in the guy said, listen, man, you know, you're welcome to have both. I'm just kidding. But normally when you get a steak that's dry aged, really nice meat, ordered medium, medium rare, or rare, medium rare, you don't put this crap on it because this is like McDonald's ketchup of steak sauce. You know, you might as well take caviar and put it on you know wonder bread it doesn't make any sense you know that's kind of reversed the analogy there but or the metaphor there but you know it just didn't make any sense and he's like if if this steak doesn't need anything to taste better the chef did what the chef knows how to do with this meat you, you don't need anything on this and so i i see what he was saying he's like why would you add salt to this you just put salt on something that's already perfect what's wrong with you yeah and and you know you bring up a good point because uh, you know the poor people don't have the luxury of going to uh, fine restaurants, right? They don't have the money. I know we didn't growing up. So, uh, okay. So you can't fault them for not knowing certain things. But this is why I wrote Rich Kids. You know, I wanted them to have these, this in writing. And this says, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. If, even if you don't have the ability to engage in the activity, at least you can read uh, and teach your kids what you read. And then maybe the kids won't have to go through the school of hard knocks like you did and get embarrassed because that's what happens, Jordan. You get embarrassed. 
when these faux pas occur as an adult. And there's people around you who, you know, might respect you. And you know what? They might not respect you as much because of that. And you just don't, you don't need that, the debit to occur in your relationship capital. You That's know? very, very true. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, back to the show. It's such an easily avoidable mistake, too. No one's going to care. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong. No one's going to care if you accidentally use your salad fork for something else. That's not a big deal. People do it all the time, absentmindedly, unless you're at a black tie event. And even then, it's like people are people. But some of these mistakes are really bad. Like I saw this, and this is another example. When I was younger, we used to take our paper napkins, throw them on our plate at the restaurant, and that was fine. You know, you could stuff it in a glass at the places where I went to eat as a kid at the end of the meal. It was no big deal. If you go to a nicer place, if they do give you a paper napkin, usually it's fabric. If you take that and you throw that on the plate when you're done, it's disgusting. And the busboy will look at you like, were you born in a barn? What's your problem? Making any kind of mess. You know, I, I had a friend I grew up with. He needed 50 napkins to eat lunch. I mean, it was absolutely vile. And it cost him a lot of relationships because we ended up going to college together. He just couldn't get it together. It's the habits, man. They will bite you and they are hard to change. So start them as kids 
get them on the straight and narrow, and it's easy to eat without 75 napkins and ketchup all over your face. Yeah, and it, and it makes it gives you, it sets your kids up for success, not for failure. Yeah, absolutely. So, what about sort of teaching kids proper mindset? Because I think poverty is in, institutionalized. And I know you argue this in your book. It's institutionalized by teaching kids a victim mindset. You know, the man is oppressing me. Things are happening to me, and I, I see this stuff on Facebook too, where I'll I'll add somebody, and it's like, oh, you're self employed. What do you do? What's your business? And they're like. Nothing, but I don't work for the man. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What does that mean? What do you do? Well, right now I'm between jobs. Well, how do you survive? Oh, I've got, you know, some assistance here and some disability there. And I'm thinking, you don't work for the man. No, you're a leech off of everyone else. It's even worse. You know, working for the man would be a step up for somebody who is, you know, literally not even trying. And I'm not saying people on disability or welfare are not even trying, but I am saying, that sometimes there's perfectly able-bodied people who just don't give a rat's because they think they should be making, you know, six figures because they exist. Yeah, well, you know, that ideology is, it seems to me that it's a cancer growing on in America. Uh, it's this idea that uh, you're entitled to a great job. Uh, you're uh, entitled uh, to a high-paying job. You're entitled to this and you're entitled to that. And if you lose your job, you're entitled to the government uh, taking care of you until you find a new job. This victim ideology, really, what it, at its very core, Jordan, what it says is I'm not responsible for my life, that wealth and poverty are completely outside my control. In other words, the circumstances that I was born in, they dictate whether or not I'm going to be rich or poor. Uh, and the, I'll tell you, the wealthy people, almost all of them in my research, had a completely different ideology. I, I like to call it the can-do ideology. I can do it. I'm individually responsible. Circumstances are temporary. Uh, it's all, you know, my mindset, my work ethic, uh, what I focus on, uh, you know, the habits I have, the behaviors, the choices that I make. Uh, the, the wealthy people just look at it differently. They uh, when, and I, I'll tell you, they look at poor people and this, you know, particularly when that 1%, 99% thing was going on, that Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street thing. Boy, you know, I remember my son, he was taking the bus, traveling four hours a day into New York City for his first job. And I have to tell you, he was pissed off at all of those people that were, were protesting because it was holding up traffic and he was trying to get to his job on time. And he was just starting out and like, People get mad at them. And I said, Brent, you know, they have a different ideology. They, they believe that, you know, the government, Wall Street, all these other people are the cause of their problems. They don't believe that they're the cause of their problems. I really think fundamentally it's poor parenting. It's parenting uh, where you're enabling your kids, where, you know, everything they do is spectacular. Instead of encouraging your kids to pursue goals and activities and then praising them for pursuing the goal and the activity. They're telling their kids, you're great, you're smart. You know, it just doesn't jive with reality. The reality is they're screwing up all the time and you need to tell your kids, well, you can do better, uh, but keep doing it. I'm proud of you for, for pursuing it. I, I think there's this enabling that's going on in society and it's the parents' fault. What we're experiencing in society, uh, all the problems we're having, even the unemployment to a certain extent, uh, is uh, particularly these kids coming out of college and not being able to find jobs. I know the economy has is a big factor in it, but a lot of it also has to do with 
companies that are just so frustrated with trying to educate these kids with fundamentals so that they can, you know, spend a year getting the fundamentals that they should have gotten at home and then, you know, letting them free on, you know, to see customers and clients and things like that. So I think that this can-do ideology is something that parents have to reinforce. And if they don't teach the kids this stuff and, and the kids don't believe that they're individually responsible for their circumstances in life, then they're going to struggle uh, and they're going to uh, eke out a living and they're going to be unhappy in life. Uh, they, they have to understand that they cannot be dependent on the parents. They can't be dependent on the government. They can't even be dependent on the employer. They have to view themselves as the one that's going to make them successful. Their circumstances do not dictate. They're only temporary. They do not dictate what their life is going to be like. Yeah, I agree. And circumstances are temporary. If you believe them to be permanent, then of course you'll never try to change. And I think that's a key realization that kids get from their parents. You know, grandma was poor, mom was poor, I'm poor. And they might fantasize about being rich, but seldom is it, I'm going to work so hard, I'm going to get rich. It's always, you know, I'm going to get rich by doing something the easy way, or they think they're going to do it the easy way by becoming a rock star or some sort of musician or, you know, invent a really cool app and have overnight success. Very seldom do they go, man, I've got at least 20 plus years of really hard work to get out of this rut. I need to catch up and learn. They usually look at it like almost like a lottery mentality. Yeah, and, and the, what they don't understand, and I guess they're not being taught this at home or in school, is that those creative breakthroughs, uh, those new products that somebody comes out with or a new service or something, something you create that's unique, you have to develop the skill for that. And it takes the genius idea, the breakthrough, it usually only comes after years and years of toil and struggle and of developing the skill and really honing your craft. And then the genius breakthrough moment occurs. It doesn't happen just because you're a human being. You have a great idea. Ideas are, have no value. They're valueless. Ideas are a dime a dozen. What makes it the big difference between successful people and unsuccessful people who have ideas is that successful people pursue those ideas with a passion. And they fail and they make mistakes and then they tweak it and they come up with a new iteration. Uh, so the ideas really have very little value in society. Oh, that's so good to hear because I get a lot of people emailing me ideas. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. And I think, okay, cool. Are you going to do that for us? Well, no, no. And even people who work here or interns and things like that will say things like, here's an idea. Do this, 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 and this. And I go, cool, man. Let me know what you need to get this done. And I actually got an email back from an intern. He's a good guy, but. I, I had to sort of give him a little bit of tough love. He goes, well, I'm just more of an idea guy. And I kind of let other people put that stuff into action. And I go, and I, I don't know if this is a quote, but it damn well should be. I said, ideas are the currency of fools. I don't care what your idea is. I hear great ideas every single day in the supermarket line at Whole Foods. I mean, there are homeless people outside my building right now that have probably had awesome ideas at one point, but it didn't get them anywhere because they didn't do shit with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's funny because I, I learned through really a, a startup that failed, but I also learned in the, from the School of Hard Knocks that when I joined a bunch of nonprofits to try and help them and develop relationships and network and all of that happy stuff, whenever I came up with an idea, some there were really some smart, successful people on the boards of these nonprofits, 
they would say, Tom, that's a great idea. When are you going to form the committee and get started? And so I learned to be very cautious about throwing out ideas because, you know, when, if you're not the type of person who's going to execute on an idea, then keep your mouth shut. Yeah, I love that. I love that. It's so funny because I don't even want to hear your idea unless you're going to make it happen. Unless we're in a place, like unless we're drinking and we're just talking about, wouldn't it be cool if, then you can talk about ideas that you're never going to do. It's funny because uh, people have the bucket list and sometimes my friends and I, we have, uh, we have the fuck it list, which is, here's a great idea I'm never going to do. I'm just talking about it because it's fun, but I have no intention of doing it. And, and so instead of the bucket list of things you're going to work to check off, you've got the other list of things that you know you're never going to do. It's just sort of a, it's a fun exercise, but we know we're just sort of emotionally, what do you even call that? You're just patting yourself on the back for having the idea, but you can't live your life like that. I remember in this brings back when I was younger and I was just married, my, my father-in-law was very, very smart. My wife's father was very smart and he would, he was a voracious reader and he would always, he was kind of like a little bit of uh, critical of, of writers. And so he said, you know, I just read this book and I, I tell you, they don't know how to write. I could do a much better job. And I remember one time after, after hearing it about a hundred times, I said to him, why don't you write a book then? And he looked at me like, you know, he's throwing daggers at me. And but I, it stuck with me. And, and I remember uh, when I wrote Rich Habits, I, re, I remember someone said, because I was talking about I was doing the research and I was doing the training. I had training sessions and I was saying, yeah, you know, I really should. I really should got to get this out there. And they said, well, what, you know, instead of talking about it, why don't you do it? Write a book. I said, well, I never wrote a book before. What does that mean? So, you know, the point is that just because you have an idea and, and then the fear gets to you, that's what really stops people from executing on ideas is, is the fear of failing. Sure. Uh, you got to overcome that fear. That, that's a poverty habit. And that, you got to get rid of that fear. The fear is, an, is a negative mindset. So I think a lot, a lot of these people who have these ideas, uh, they don't execute them because they are just, you know, wallowing in fear of, of failing. And you, and that's uh, something that parents need to teach their kids early on. You teach them how to fail, teach them to fail, and fail often. The more they fail as kids, the better off they'll be as adults. Thanks so much. This has been really great. And hopefully there's some kids out there who are going to get schooled because of it. If not some adults that need to learn which fork is a salad fork. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. It's never too late to teach yourself these habits, though. If you're if you're feeling stagnant, you know, and you don't know what to do, start honing this stuff, man. It's a really easy place to start because most of this is rote memorization followed by habit change based on things you do every day. Introducing yourself to people, eating. Uh, start at home. Your parents will think you're weird if you're a young guy out there. Your roommates will think you're weird. Who cares? The next people you have dinner with doesn't matter. It's your life. It's your life. It's not your parents' life. Do it for yourself. Exactly. Thanks so much. And of course, we'll link to the book, Rich Kids, in the show notes, as well as to your website as well. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jordan. I appreciate it. All right, Tom. Now, this stuff is interesting. I don't have kids, but I definitely want to know how to make my kids awesome when I do have them. And of course, I found some holes in my own manners and etiquette that probably need some, some filling. And I think it's interesting you can raise your IQ. And of course, the link between happiness, success, and purpose is really understated and undervalued by a lot of people. And, and we've seen it all over the place. I mean, people who have a purpose can be happy even if they're not making a ton of money. And we've also seen plenty of people who make tons of money and aren't happy either. Forced focus versus unforced focus, I'd never really thought about as a concept. 
but it makes perfect sense just from my own experience. And I'm sure you guys have seen the exact same thing when you're engaging in a hobby versus studying or your job. And, and of course, everybody wants to know the mindset that will help their kids get to the top 5% in society because that is most of our main purpose in life is raising some damn good kids. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Special thanks to you guys for listening. Show feedback and guest suggestions. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordanh at theartofcharm.com. And of course, boot camp details there as well. Go ahead and email or call me. Honestly, that's the best way to get in touch and I'll give you everything you need to know about our programs here in LA. If you guys are listening but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, go ahead and make the change there because getting your shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. Just go to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and search for The Art of Charm. That's it. And if you guys want to write us a nice review, we'll love you forever there as well because it helps other people find us, and it's really important to keep our show ranks up. So tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.